you're listening to a night dream the night dream podcast well uh, one day I would like to finish the two books I started you're listening to a night dream the night dream podcast first night dream of the episode is called Equal. For most of your adult life, you've fed animals at the circus. You still feed animals at the circus, but the longer you do it, the less you like them. You did like them at the beginning, and you wouldn't have taken the job if you thought that you would eventually lose interest in the good parts. For a long time, you fought for the animals as your friends, Then one day, while throwing fish to the seals, you realise coldly that they lack reason, and instead of throwing the fish to the seal, you throw it at them. Afterwards, you had to look over your shoulder, ashamed that you had acted so instinctually in front of the animals. When you get home, you tell your partner that you hate how loud the animals are. At the zoo, they ask? Yes, at the zoo. Where else? The next day you look a seal straight in the eye and ask them, how stupid are you? And the seal just carries on being a seal. You never used to think about how heavy the buckets are. You really used to hate the smell, but now you barely notice it. The whole place smells, but the smell has become familiar. Your food is too visceral, you shout at the black bears. The same black bears that you used to think of as friends. Now their hair is tufty, and they sit like someone who has indigestion. Are you sad, you ask them? Is it hard eating half a cow every single day? I'll talk to the chef, see what they can do for you tomorrow. Before you move on, you notice that one of the bears hasn't moved to eat. You watch its chest move up and down as it breathes. In your experience, animals only stop eating when something isn't right, and you make a mental note to tell the vet. There's always something, you tell the bear as you leave. You don't like to see the animals suffer, and in rare moments of honesty, you feel awful for being part of the organisation that keeps them in cages. You find the vet outside, sat staring into space. You sit down next to them and ask them for a cigarette. They hold the pack out to you, open. When the vet eventually speaks, they tell you that they've had a long day, Not wanting to make their day longer, you put off telling them about the bear. The two of you sit still together, as if the air is wax, setting into an enormous mould of the world. When the vet gets up to leave, you say bye without remembering to tell them about the bear. Alone, you realise that you still haven't fed the tigers. You always feed the tigers last. You like to look at them, enormously strong and confined. They are so latently dangerous that for the first few years of feeding them, you made a point not to look at them directly in the eye. Genuine and curious, you ask the enclosure, when did you give up? One of the tigers gets up and walks towards you. You take this as a sign that the tigers are hungry, which you feel is partly your fault for sitting with the vet for so long. And as you rest your hand against the bars to its cage, you slip, and the top part of your head to your ears slides into the tiger's space. 
The tiger, who has never listened to anything you have ever said to it, moves forward and bites your head like an egg. You sag forwards into the bars, unthinking, and having fed the animals for years, you now begin to feed the animals. The next night dream is called Tragedy. It's quite depressing, so fast forward two minutes from now if you want to skip it. You are sat on the tube, trying hard not to look down excitedly at the motorbike helmet you've just bought. The box it's in is the right size to be a present, and to you in this moment, the colourful box is very exciting. You look around the carriage to see if anyone else is looking, imagining them, imagining what your life must be like. Maybe to them you look like you own a motorbike, or that you're a reluctant parent. It's your stop after this one, so you stand up, carefully lifting the helmet, because you know that once a helmet hits the ground, you shouldn't use it again. Well, you know that it's true for cycling helmets, and you assume that the same is true for scooter helmets. You carry the box proudly, lovingly, instructing the helmet inside, showing it great care. When you get home, you take the helmet out of the box and sit it on top of your moped. You feel blessed to live in a time where you can make a living delivering food to people, guided by GPS on your phone. You've worked other exploitative jobs in this city and figured that this one will work best for you. There's at least a crumb of excitement within this new life where you can choose when to work and you decide how many deliveries you achieve in a day. In the first week, you try and do more deliveries each following day, the second week, you swerved to avoid a bus that pulled out in front of you, only to be crushed against it by another bus that you didn't see. The second night dream is called Machine. You are playing with the panel on the side of a machine that plays the same song for you every day. The panel becomes loose and thousands of cogs pour out of the side of it. You try to close the panel but only trap some of the cogs against the side of the machine. Removing the panel completely, you look inside and see that the inner workings of the machine is made up almost entirely of these cogs, with only a compact gap left to fit all of the cogs that fell to the floor. Before you touch any of the cogs, you push the panel back into place, hoping that the machine will continue to play the song. You start the machine, and it remains silent. So you begin to look at the little pile of cogs, and they almost look identical, but when you try and match two together, you can't. No two cogs are exactly the same size. You try to remember the song, aware now that you quite possibly will never hear it again. It comes back to you, of course, having heard it every day for as long as you can remember, but you know that it is not complete. You see the melody, like the outline of a letter, or a wave that reaches its full shape but can't crash downwards. If someone had told you earlier that this would happen, you would have been devastated, but now that it has happened, there is nothing you can do but accept it. The next night dream is called Icarus. You live on an island with your father. It is just the two of you, with the occasional boat stopping to drop things off or pick things up. 
Although you don't know where they come from, you used to ask your dad if one day you could go with them. The answer, however long, would always be no. Slowly, your dad developed a speech that just hearing the first words of would irritate you. People who live by the sea spend their lives looking for treasure. These people manage to look through the treasure that is the sea and through their own reflection, again, another treasure, into what is mostly vast and empty. We are safe on this island to live and create as we wish. But you already recognise that the desire to create is not one that you share with your father. You beg him to let you go in the water. He won't go in and won't let you, and as a child you don't know why, but he won't. You ask him again and again, and he says that the water is too dangerous, which you jump towards, arguing that if you are surrounded by danger, you should at least be able to traverse it. He tells you that there is no danger on land, and this response makes you so angry that you start ignoring your father when he calls your name. You do this because it is one of the few things you can do, but your dad has lived on this island longer than you and can bear the silence if it keeps things as they are. Feeling pushed, you do the worst thing you can think of doing, and throw his hammer into the sea. Without turning to look at you, he runs and dives into the water, diving down to the bottom and returning with the hammer. All he says to you is, don't do that again, and the next day, while taking a break from smithing, you sit in the shallows, letting the waves cool you. Your dad teaches you to swim on the condition that you will never try to swim to the mainland. It is too far for a person to swim, too dangerous. You are swimming around the island when you see the boat approaching. You wave and immediately the boat changes course towards you. What are you doing in the water, they ask. Where is your father? On the island, you say, having no context for their sudden aggression. The next day, everything seems fine, but you can tell that your dad is thinking about something. You both work all day on an order of brooches for the king. The work is good. You have made hundreds of brooches in your life, but you can tell that your father is agitated. He tells you that you've done a good job and that he will finish the rest of the work. You lie in the sand, listening to him work, wondering how you upset the men on the boat who used to be so nice to you. In the morning, your dad brings out two pairs of metal boots. He says they are proof of your loyalty to the king. He puts his own on and gestures for you to do the same. The boots are heavy and awkward. Once they are on, your dad hammers metal brooches around the top of your ankles, making the boots impossible to take off. At night, you hear him sobbing. He whispers into your ear that the king is enormously cruel and in the morning you start work again. Your pride in the act of creation has gone. You will not make beautiful things for a cruel man, and you don't understand why your dad does either. Eventually you tell your dad how you feel, and he tells you that your lives are very simple. If you want to live on the island, you must continue making jewellery for the king. You love your dad and acknowledge his part in everything you have ever made or day you have lived, but decide that you must escape. You do not share your father's loyalty to the king or his fear. The boots make it very hard to swim, but not impossible. 
and after swimming for a long time, you begin to feel the boots more and more. They tug at your feet as if desperate to walk along the seabed. The enormous space of the sea makes you long for a path, and you look back, and the island now appears to be at least as far away as the shore. You hear your name far and frantically in the distance. Gulping above the waves, you cry out Daedalus, the word that the sailors used to summon your father, and he hears you. You are already starting to sink. Your progress forwards has stalled, and now you either stay where you are or begin to descend. Sinking, your head empties, greedily filling with water, and for the last time you feel your father gripping onto your shoulder. He is determined but old, and his boots are bigger. He cannot be responsible for this, so he prizes off one brooch and undoes the boot, and then, although it is the last thing he wants to do, he resurfaces for air as you limply drop further towards the floor. Again he reaches you but cannot remove the last brooch, loosening it and removing the remaining boots. He looks at his own, embracing you, then letting you go as he continues downwards. You wake up on the shore and slip the brooch from your leg. The inside of the brooch is inscribed with the words, Metal bends to serve the interest of others. The next night dream is called Supermarket. You go to the supermarket, but instead of buying anything, you start pushing things off the shelves onto the floor. You move carefully, fast and aggressively, filling the aisle with food. Supermarket staff and shoppers gather at both ends of the aisle as you use your arm to sweep an entire row of drinks onto the floor. A man tells you to stop and you tell him to shut up. You continue pulling bags of sugar and flour towards you, thudding onto the floor. Somebody in the crowd announces that they are calling the police and you ignore them. When you have cleared every aisle, you run into the street looking for a new supermarket. The last night dream of the episode is called A Memory Of. You blow out the last candle in the room, but instead of shuddering out, the flame remains undisturbed. The room stays lit by the lone candle, and you wonder if you did move to blow out the candle, or just thought about doing it. Not fully believing either, you blow again, and this time you are certain that the flame should have gone out. You move your hand through the flame, and as far as you can tell, it moves around your hand, but doesn't go out. Before the candle, you were busy worrying about something else, and you really aren't ready to allocate any space to the candle, so you move the candle from its soft space on the shelf to the concrete alley beside your house, and you leave it. As you start to walk upstairs, you realise that you are now worried about the big thing from before, but also the candle. So you put a jacket on over your pyjamas and go back outside to the candle. The flame burns and you ask it, why are you doing this to me? And it continues to burn. So vindictively, you begin walking down the road, holding the candle. And although you make no effort to protect it, it continues to light your way. Eventually, you reach the promenade and make your way onto the pier, which is empty. You stop and lean against the side of the pier, giving the candle one more chance to go out. 
Still the flame continues ignoring the world, so you drop the candle over the side, into the water, and you watch the flame sink deep into the sea, where it sits the same way that it did in your living room. You walk home, free of this new responsibility, and get into bed, where you lie, picturing the candle's flame. <laughs>